the salmon run. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the salmon run. Have you ever heard of this? This unbelievable phenomenon in nature. Uh, some of you are fishermen, some of you are fisherwomen, and I, I can't, I don't even like eating fish. Some of you like to eat salmon, whatever the case may be, but the salmon run basically is you have the, the female salmon and they lay eggs in the shallow part of a brook or a stream or a river, and then the, the male salmon will fertilize those eggs, and then later on you have fish babies, that's a scientific term, and then as the, these fish babies get older, then they swim with the current down the stream, down the river, into a bigger body of water, usually a saltwater sea or ocean, something like that. Well, then when it becomes time for them to spawn, spawning season, what happens? These salmon swim back to the place they were born. It's unbelievable. Some of them travel hundreds of miles, and they're swimming against the current, so much so, look at, this, look at this picture on the screen. I mean, they're, they're jumping over waterfalls, they're swimming against raging rapids, swimming against the current. You know, sometimes I take our family to a water park and I'll be in the lazy river and I'll jump off the tube and I'll go against the current and I feel like I'm a mime in a hurricane, just, you know, right? Just, it's hard going against the current. I have mad respect for salmon. <laughs> I am blown, isn't God creative? I am blown away by salmon. It's incredible. They swim against the current to get to where they were born. Well, Christians, we were born again. And Christians, we live a life, one that is constantly swimming against the cultural current of our day. You know, every environment has a culture. Our church has a culture. Your workplace has a culture. Your neighborhood has a culture. Our society has a culture. Even your home has a culture. And culture is an unwritten set of rules by which people live in that particular environment. So it influences how you think, how you feel, how you talk, how you live, how you perceive, how you behave. And culture is always created. Whether intentionally or not, whether you are working on it or not, actively or passively, someone or something is creating culture in your home. And you can usually tell culture in a home by the values, and you can determine values by observation. So what are the values in your home? What's creating culture in your home? Is it technology, sports, academia, wealth, possessions, status, success, recreation? If someone were to come into your home, unbeknownst to you, didn't know you, how would they describe the culture of your home? Now, we would be wise to take an active role in forming a gospel culture in our homes, but there is a raging current against the Christian home. There are many forces of current swimming against us. There's the pressure of activities. Maybe you get FOMO, fear of missing out, or the pressure of achievement. I just have to do, do, do more, or my kids have to do, 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 do more. Maybe there's the tyranny of the urgent, the busyness of schedule. Maybe there's this innate desire to be popular or to be liked. Whatever the case is, what are the forces working against you? There are forces working against the culture in your home as a Christian. So can we ingrain the gospel so much so that the way we talk, the way we think, the way we discipline our children, the way we converse around the dinner table is part of our very fabric of living? 
Now, we could talk this morning about the modern family and the normalization of family dynamics that, to be honest, the Bible would never condone or validate, but that's not what we're talking about this morning. We could talk about different types of family, but there are all kinds of family types in here. Some of you are married, some of you are not. We have two-parent homes with kids. We have single-parent homes. We have those who are single by choice and have been called to singleness for their life. We have those who are single but want to be married but are not married yet. We have those who are single and divorced, those who are single and widowed. We have adoptive homes. We have foster parents. We have grandparents, great-grandparents, grandkids, great-grandkids. Some of you were raised as an only child. Some of you have double-digit siblings. We have aunts and uncles and all types of families, but that's not what we're talking about either. What we are talking about today is a countercultural element in the Christian home that sets us apart from the world, that causes us to swim against the current, and it's simply one word. You can write it down if you want, but I'm pretty sure you'll be able to memorize it. Grace. Someone say grace. grace. See, the key ingredient to the uncommon family, which the Christian home is the uncommon family in society, the one that lives for the Lord, the one that's counterculturally against the grain of self-exaltation is the gospel of grace. Last year I mentioned a prayer app, which is, I believe, the best prayer app I've ever seen, and it's called PrayMinder. So it's like Reminder, but pray. Uh, in fact, I would encourage you to go to your app store, download it. It's so good. It's free, and I love, uh, maybe I'm part Dutch. I don't know. I love free stuff. But... Pray Minder. So it sends you prayer reminders every day. And so I have an ongoing list. I pray for a number of you by name and over specific things. And I was going over that prayer list over the last couple of days. And I'm like, man, most of these things are family related. Marriages that are deeply struggling and on the rocks. Um, children that are going through severe crises. Mental health issues in the home. Adult children who have walked away from the Lord and want nothing to do with them. And on and on and on. You know what all of those have in common? They all need grace. They all require grace. So what is grace? Well, the standard definition is God's undeserved, anyone know? Favor. That's like the classic definition, God's undeserved favor. And that's true, especially in salvation. We don't earn salvation. We don't deserve salvation. In fact, we deserve God's just wrath because of our sin because of our rebellion against him. And so it's unmerited, it's undeserved, it's unearned, and it's God's favor upon us. That is 100% true. But also, 2 Corinthians 9.8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So grace is for salvation, but grace also seems to be a power or an influence working within us to live for the Lord. God's grace is both the inclination of the divine heart to treat us better than we deserve, and infinitely better, by the way, and it is the extension of his divine heart to practically help us to live for him. So let's take a deeper dive into how and why and what shaping our culture in our home through grace in Jesus. So turn to Titus chapter 2. 
Titus is in the New Testament in your, in your Bibles or on your Bible app on your phone. It's one of the letters of Paul, and he's writing to, anybody know? Who's he writing to? Titus. That's a softball question. Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce godliness, sorry, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. By the way, verse 11, when it says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, it doesn't mean literally every single person, past, present, future, in existence, because that would be universalistic, and it would actually contradict all of Paul's writings, including the very next verse. It means all people who trust in Jesus, all Believers. So the grace of God has appeared, according to verse 11. How? Through the greatest act of grace in history, which is outlined in verse 14. So look at verse 14. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, notice that Paul calls Jesus God. He doesn't mince words here. Have you noticed that keeps coming up in these sermon series recently? Jesus is God. He is divine. He is fully God, fully man. And Paul calls him our great God and Savior, Jesus, the Messiah. And this Jesus, this Messiah, this great God, this Savior, Messiah, gave himself up for us to redeem us. That means to liberate a captive person by praying the price for his or her release. Paying the price when we were held captive for our release as a people from all lawlessness, all sin and consequences of sin, and, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Folks, that's the good news. That's the gospel. And it is both redemptive for salvation and transformative for sanctification. That means being made more and more holy like Jesus. It's a lifelong process. Look at verse 12. Yes, it's for salvation, but also look at verse 12. It says, God's grace trains us. Now, this word trains us is the same word in the Greek as disciplines us. Child child rearing. When you discipline your child, that's the word used here. Isn't it interesting that God's grace disciplines us, trains us, child rears us? For what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Grace is needed to instruct us to live differently than the world and to instead live, as this says, self-controlled, upright, godly lives later? No. When? Now. Now. In this current society, now in our culture, now in this present age, we can live godly lives swimming against the current. So to put it this way, God is not only for the unsaved sinner, Grace is not only for the unsaved sinner. Grace is for the saved saint. And if you trust in Jesus, folks, you are actually both sinner and saint. It's for salvation and sanctification. The the grace of Jesus is not mere knowledge. 
it, it brings salvation to the sinner and it is lived out in a lifelong transformation into his likeness. So we need God's grace to transform our hearts, our minds, our conduct, our character. Grace is for every day in your home, every day, multiple times a day. But also look at verse 13. Grace is not self-exalting. Grace is God-glorifying. Verse 13 says, our blessed hope through the grace of God is in the glory of Jesus. Our hope, our purpose in life is to glorify Christ in all things. Some of you grew up Presbyterian or Reformed, so maybe you remember the Westminster Catechism. First question is, what is the chief end of man, chief end of humanity, mankind? What's the answer? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that is backed up by scripture over and over. 2 Corinthians 10.31 says, whatever you do, whether eating or drinking, do everything, everything for the glory of God. Colossians 3.17, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so, what is, let me ask you this, what is the greatest culprit of strife in our homes? Everyone raise your hand. Everyone raise your hand. Exactly. <laughs> we are. You are. I am. We are the biggest culprits. It's exaltation of self. And, and, and James 4 attests to this. It says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. And you do not ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. When we exalt self over God and over others, we are robbing God of glory. We, we, we are seeking our own glory instead of his. So folks, the problem isn't out there. The problem isn't others in your home. I mean, it, they're, they're maybe part of it. The problem starts here. We need to be real. We need to be honest. The problem starts here. It starts with self. We have to stop exalting self and start exalting him and lifting up others, which leads to the next few verses. Look at chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. These verses are about how we should interact with others. Respect, obedience. Oh, parents, you're like salivating right now. Oh, if my kids just showed respect and obeyed. Oh, this is, sounds glorious. Gentleness, doing good, speaking kindness, showing courtesy. Can you imagine if our society, can you imagine if our families, just Christian families, lived out these two verses? What would our culture, what would our world, what would our society look like? It'd be drastically different, radically different. You know, when you go to a playground, there's, there's a staple of almost every playground. There's one piece of equipment that's probably at most playgrounds. It's at the one at the park near our house, the seesaw. I love the seesaw. And so I, I will go with my two little girls. They're five and eight. So they're tiny. They're little. And I'll get on one end, and they'll both sit together on the other end. 
Now, I weigh pounds, and uh, my two daughters weigh not even half of what I weigh. So I'll get on there, and I'll just, and they're, and then I like to mess with them. So I'm like, isn't this fun, girls? I'll just sit there for a little bit, and they're like, Daddy! We want to go up and down. Oh, you want to go up and down. Oh, okay, okay. So I have to like bounce and jump and do all that. But to elevate them, what does the other have to do? Lower yourself. I mean, it, you can't both be lifted. You can't both be elevated. That would go against the laws of physics. You have a fulcrum on the seesaw. That's the middle point. So only one can be lifted while one is lowered. Only one can be elevated, exalted, while the other is lowered. You see where I'm going with this. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider, count others better than yourself. Do not seek only your own interests, but also the interests of others. It's saying, elevate others by lowering self. I think that is the key to marriage. That's the key to family. You have to elevate, exalt, lift up others while you humbly lower yourself. To put it another way, grace doesn't keep score. It seeks the best for others. 1 Corinthians 13, it's known as the love chapter, and it's usually read at every wedding. The context, by the way, is church family is what it's talking about. Uh, But it's applicable to the home. It's applicable to marriage, too. You know, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking. You know what verse 5 says? Love keeps no record of wrongs. And yet, man, Pastor Stephen could probably tell you, every pastor could tell you, so many times counseling people, maybe it's a couple that's struggling, maybe it's parents talking about their kids or kids talking about their parents, and it's this going on, blame shifting, finger pointing. Well, he did this, and she did this, and da, 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 da. And I've literally a couple times had, I've sat down with some folks, and someone will come in, whether mental or, this has happened a couple times, a literal list of wrongdoings. And so they'll sit there and go, well, let me tell you all the things my wife did. Let me tell you all the things my husband, blah, 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 and they'll just read this list. And I'm like, you, you literally have a list, you are literally keeping a record of wrongs. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it say that we are to forgive and forget. Forgiveness and forgetting is not the same thing. In other words, forgiveness does not mean there aren't consequences. If someone wrongs you, you can forgive them, but there still are consequences. There still are ramifications. It's true with God, too. We could sin. If I murder someone, you know, that family might forgive me. I'm still going to prison for the rest of my life. What I'm talking about here is when you have forgiven someone and they are repentant, you can't keep bringing it up. That list, that record of wrongs is gone. It's wiped, it's done. You can't keep bringing it up. With kids, spouses, holding, avoid holding grudges. Avoid bringing up past forgiven, repented sins. Love keeps no record of wrongs because grace does not keep score. It seeks the best of others. Grace is also not self-preservation, it's sacrificial. The cross showed the greatest act of sacrificial love in history. And when we follow Jesus, and we take up our cross daily, 
which Luke 9.23, Jesus says to do, we take up our cross daily. That means we die to self daily, seeking the good of others in your home daily. Ephesians 5, which is usually my go-to passage for most weddings I preach. I I do it because I think it's the best passage on marriage and family in, in all of the Bible, one of the best. And in that passage, it says, husbands, so guys, husbands, I want to talk to you for a second. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You should be shaking in your boots a little bit right now. Do you know why? How much did Christ love the church? He died for her. So there's nothing you shouldn't be willing to give up. Nothing you shouldn't, you should be willing to die literally for your wife and for your kids. You should be putting them ahead of your own needs, ahead of your own interests, your own self-desires. But ladies, it also says, wives, submit to your husbands as the church does to Christ. That's a high calling too. That means you respect your husbands and you seek, again, you lay aside your own self-interest and you seek the best of your husband and your family. You put him ahead of yourself. Do you see how difficult this is and how impossible this would be apart from grace? Ephesians 5 is saying that the purpose of family and marriage is to display gospel truth. Russell Moore in the book, The Storm-Tossed Family, says it this way, the Christian vision of marriage can, e- can neither denigrate marriage nor idealize it. If a marriage is what the Bible tells us it is, then marriage is not a vehicle for self-actualization. If we see it as such, we will be disillusioned and disappointed. Marriage is an embedded picture of the gospel. Marriage is a gospel tract. You remember gospel tracts? Like those little small pamphlets you'd hand out to people and hopefully someone would read it and have the gospel, explain the gospel, and they'd get saved. Marriage might be one of the best gospel tracts we have. Your home, single or married, might be one of the best gospel tracts you have. How you demonstrate grace in your home is going to be a powerful witness to society. There is a sacrificial cost in laying down self, a sacrificial cost involved. But here's the thing. The beauty of grace is that it pays the cost. Jesus has already paid that bill. And he laid down himself. And so we follow in his footsteps. And by the grace that he gives us, we are able to lay down ourselves and pay that cost. Isn't grace awesome? Now, look at verse 3 through 7. This is the crux of this passage. And honestly, it's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. In fact, it's so good. I, I want you guys to stand as we read this. Also because you look like you just need to move around a little bit. So (laughs) Titus 3, verse 3, For we ourselves, that's all of us, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But God, but, have you noticed, by the way, over the last several weeks, we keep seeing these but God passages. I love a good but God passage. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You guys can be seated. Yeah, that's good stuff. Look again at verses three and four. We were, 
If you are in Christ, this is who you used to be. Or if you are not yet in Christ, this is who you are now. We were foolish. Whoa! Okay, ease off, Paul. Get off our backs a little bit. Foolish, really? Yep. Foolish. We were ignorant. We were disobedient, rebellious against God and others. We were led astray. That means we were deceived. We were just swimming with the current. We were slaves. That's a strong word. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Maybe it's sexual lust, pornography in the home. Maybe it's greed. You, 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 you're a workaholic because you just want more, 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 more wealth or possessions or status. Maybe, maybe it's some of the acceptable sins in society like gluttony and laziness. Whatever the case may be, we were slaves. We were enslaved to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice. Now, malice is not a word you hear often. Malice is intent to harm. And I think no one is better at knowing how to harm and hurt than family members, right? Ooh, no one knows you better, so no one knows how better to stick that dagger like right, right in that spot where you like, it it's, inflicts the most pain. Like they will just take that shiv and just shank you. I mean, not literally, hopefully. <laughs> Might want to feel that way sometimes, but I mean, they know with their words or actions just how to uh, hurt, or maybe you've done that with your family, malice. And envy, constantly playing the comparison game, seeing how you measure up with others, especially those in your family. How do you measure up or how do you feel measured up by someone in your home? Constantly playing the comparison game, which is frustrating, it's depressing, and it's exhausting because it's a losing game. You cannot win. There are no winners because you will either see that you don't measure up to expectations whether theirs or yours, and you will sink into despair, or you think, you know what, I measure up pretty well. And you look down on others in your family as you elevate yourself to that high and lofty soapbox, that upper platform, looking down on everyone, silently judging them. Envy. It says, hated by others and hating one another. Constant strife contempt, fighting. Now you may look at this list and you may think, yep, that's our home. At least a part of it. That, man, that, just, that describes us so well. Well, you are not alone because every home, every family in this entire building has had one, some, or all of those things. Every one of us. But here's where hope steps in. Here is where the intro words of verse 4 are, again, some of the most glorious in all of Scripture, but God. Do you know what another label for those two words are, but God is? What do you think? It's the word I've been saying over and over and over in this sermon. Grace! That's grace! And it says, but when the, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, goodness, loving kindness, that's his heart That's his impetus. That's the driving force behind his grace. That's what compels God to do what he does, to do what he did with Jesus, to wrap his arms around us through Jesus. It's his goodness, his loving kindness that he lavishes on us. See, we actually deserve God's wrath for verse verse three. 
but he withholds that in mercy. And then we see this complete undeserved turnaround in verse 4 where he lavishes all this on us instead. Folks, that's grace, and grace triumphs over sin. Grace supersedes sin. Grace is victorious, overcomes sin. Grace, as Romans 5 says, abounds over sin. So how does God through Jesus lavish us with grace? Well, look at verses 4 through 7. Salvation, not according to our own self-righteous works, not according to what we do, not according to to going to church, being religious, being a nice person, calling yourself a Christian, memorizing the Bible, whatever. Salvation according to his own mercy, it's grace. And then it says washing of regeneration. He makes us a new person through the Holy Spirit. He makes us new. He regenerates us. He makes us a new creation. He cleanses us from the old. And then it says renewal. That means constant renewal for the rest of your life of the Holy Spirit. So as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, by faith, in grace, we are filled with the Spirit who continually works on us to make us more like Jesus. And we have, look what it says, we have the Holy Spirit richly, abundantly. We don't get like a little piece of the Holy Spirit. We don't get a part now. We don't get like... You know, okay, God says, okay, I'll give you like part one of the Holy Spirit. In two weeks, you'll get part two. And then in a month, you'll get part three. No, no, we have all of the Holy Spirit richly, abundantly now through Jesus. We are justified in his grace. That means we are declared just, righteous, pure, holy. All the things that Jesus is by the blood of Jesus as we are covered in Jesus in faith by grace, we have all all of that. So when God sees us, he sees one who is just, pure, and holy. Isn't that unbelievable? Like literally, hard to believe. That's why we even need grace to believe. Oh, that's so much grace. And then we become heirs of God. Not heirs, heirs. The word heir is the root word of inheritance. So we inherit the blessings bestowed on the Son of God. Do you guys realize that we get to reign with Jesus in heaven forever. That's literally what God's word says. As princes and princesses of the king of all kings, we get to reign with Jesus in royalty. Isn't grace astounding? And we have the hope of eternal life, it says. Do you see how beautiful and mind-blowing grace is? Any one of those things, any one of those would have been enough. Any one of those would have been sufficient. Any one of those would have been beautiful and mind-blowing in and of itself. Any one of those things would have been incredible, amazing grace. But we have all that and more. Grace upon grace upon grace. See, sin is far more grievous, more heinous, more ugly, detestable, disgusting, more destructive, and a bigger disaster than we think it is. But grace is more amazing, more powerful, more victorious, and more overcoming than we could ever imagine. And the better that you understand those two extremes, the putridness of our sin and the awe-inspiring beauty of his grace, the more likely you will live in gratitude and actually show that grace to others, displaying it to others, which leads to the next point. Grace has no terminal limits. It naturally, constantly, beautifully extends to others. 
when you experience transforming grace, you extend it to others. We should freely give what we have freely received. Last Monday night, Monday Night Football, was the, by the way, the highest rated Monday Night Football game since Monday Night Football switched to ESPN in 2006. And it, I, I believe probably one of the most talked about Monday Night Football games in history. Why? Well, in the first quarter, there was a guy uh, starting safety for the Buffalo Bills, DeMar Hamlin, who went for a tackle, made the tackle, stood up, and he, boom, immediately hit the turf. And the trainers came out, the medical people came out, and they checked him, and he wasn't breathing. His heart literally stopped. His heart died. He, had a cardi- he went into cardiac arrest. He had a heart attack on the field. They had to do the AED a couple times. They used CPR a couple times. They literally had to revive his heart. He died on the field, and they had to keep, you know, they got his heart pumping again. And from what I've heard, he's actually in recovery and making progress, which is amazing. And it was also, as a side note, really cool to see Christians pulled together across the country praying for him. But DeMar Hamlin has a charity called Chasing M's Foundation. And before that game, he had a project where he wanted to raise $2,500 for a toy drive for underprivileged kids in the Pittsburgh area. $2,500. Since that injury, do you know how much they've raised? Over $8 million. So people, in the name of DeMar, are giving to this charity so that the charity can be a conduit of these gifts of grace because they're not expecting anything in return. They can't get anything in return. They just want it to be a channel of grace to others, to bless others, to bestow on others, to help others. And when we, when we receive the grace of God, we become conduits of his grace to pass it along to those around us in the name of Jesus especially to those who are in our home. The ultimate litmus test for how you understand grace, for how much you grasp grace, is how you extend it to people in your home. Forgive and ask for forgiveness because we have been forgiven much. Give sacrificially because God gave us everything. Lavish grace because of the infinite grace lavished on us. Serve greatly because we have been greatly served. Proclaim the message of hope because he has filled us with joy and hope. Show goodness and loving kindness because God, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Which leads to the last thing. Grace is not performance-based. It loves us unconditionally. And we see that notion clearly here. Our great God and Savior, Jesus, saved us not because of anything we've done, not because of our works, but because of his goodness, his loving kindness, his mercy. That means his grace is unconditional. And so the grace of God that overflows from us to others should be unconditional as well. Now you may be thinking, well, yeah, but... He fill in the blank. Well, yeah, but she fill in the blank. Yeah, but he did this or didn't do this or she had this or didn't have this or whatever. Yeah, but. You know, we don't have a right to say yeah, but. Actually, the only one who has a right to say yeah, but is God. And he said that in verse four. Yeah, but my goodness, my loving kindness, you deserved wrath. Yeah, but. 
And yet we say, yeah, but, yeah, but, and we point fingers at those in our home. Now, is that grace or is that conditional? Grace does not demand of family members what they could never deliver. Your family members cannot ever, can never be your source of joy or motivation or fulfillment or purpose or meaning or significance or identity. They're not meant to be. And if you put them in that place, they will fail you. Why? Because we're sinners. We're human. That's what we do. We sin. That's why we need grace. Nothing in creation can take the place of the creator. Yet this happens all the time in the home. And when you realize that through the grace of God in Jesus, you already have those things. You already have joy and fulfillment and purpose and identity and significance and motivation. The crushing weight of pressure and expectation either on others or on you is lifted and it is so freeing. So all this leads to a few practical things. I want to give you real quick a few practical things. Number one, grace gets to the heart. Uh, there's a difference between behavior modification and heart guidance. And Christian parents, I've seen too many Christian parents try to do behavior modification with their kids or spouses with their spouse. Try to conform their behavior, their outward actions and words. Try to conform their behavior instead of getting to the heart. See, if you want a plant to flower, you, you, you do have to address what's above the surface a little bit, but you have to get to the underlying root before you address the surface level things. And Jesus affirms this in Luke 6. He says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. Listen, out of the abundance, that means out of the overflow of the heart, his mouth speaks. So the words you say reveal your heart when it's squeezed. Number two, speak grace and show grace. Look at, look at Titus verse two, I'm sorry, chapter two, verse one. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine or healthy doctrine. The word for teach is literally speak. Paul is saying speak good, sound, healthy, theological doctrine. Talk about Jesus. Talk about the gospel constantly. And then in verses 2 through 8 of chapter 2, shows living in a way that reflects the gospel of grace. Particularly, actually, Paul addresses how this looks in marriage, how this looks in family. He talks about wives should look like this. Husbands should look like this. So let your speech and actions line up and reveal grace, the grace of Jesus. Pastor Steve calls this the drip principle. You, you, however, whenever, wherever possible, you drip spiritual content into your daily conversations. So you pray together. Drip, drip, drip. You, every day, by the way, pray together as a family or as a couple. You talk casually about things of God. You regularly direct attention to Jesus early and often. You talk more about Jesus than you do about Pinterest or the Cubs or the great British baking show which is surprisingly addictive. <laughs> you ask good spiritual questions. You openly and honestly confess your struggles and weaknesses. Listen, parents, if you do that with your kids or spouse with your spouse, if you openly and honestly confess your struggles and weaknesses, ooh, they will appreciate authenticity. You will change the culture of your home. Because again, our world doesn't do that. That goes against the grain. That goes against the current. 
Place tangible spiritual reminders of grace around your home. How many of you remember the pink eraser that Steve mentioned in the family month last year? How many of you still have that? And like you didn't actually use it as an eraser. You still have it? Okay. That's great. Find that eraser or just get another eraser. Put it in a place in your home to remind you of forgiveness. See, others in your home should see and hear the gospel constantly. If they, if they hear grace but they don't see it, they won't believe it. If they see grace but they don't hear it, they'll attribute it to something else like niceness. But grace is much more than mere niceness. If they see it and hear it, they'll be drawn to it. Because nothing else is like it in the world. Which leads to the last thing, preach the grace of Jesus to yourself. Preach grace to yourself. You may be hearing all this and like, well, I have failed as a parent, a family, a, or a parent or a, a spouse or a kid or sibling. I have failed. Well, join the club. We all have failed and we all continue to fail. Your family is not and will never be perfect and neither are you. It's actually why we need grace to transform and sustain us. Some of you just need someone to come alongside you, put their arm around you, and remind you and encourage you with grace. Swim in the ocean of grace. See, a family centered on the gospel of grace through Jesus is an uncommon and beautiful family. And we swim against the current by swimming in his grace.